Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I will be speaking to Amy Arundel, a biomechanist and PT for the Brooklyn Nets NBA team. In this conversation, we'll be covering injury risk mitigation, implementing preventative systems with youth athletes, and developmental considerations in rehabilitation. This episode has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, which has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength, combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualization, and cloud analytics. So the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individual hamstring strength and imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard or from Vald, visit vaudperformance.com. But without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Amy Arundel. Amy, welcome to the show. It's a great privilege to have you on for a chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I really appreciate it. It's an honor. Just to kick us off, can you uh, give the listeners a little bit of information on, I guess, your background from from the start of it professionally through till maybe this current day where you're at the Brooklyn Nets? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess professionally, uh, my journey really kind of actually started out as a soccer coach. Um, coming through university, I both uh, played soccer collegiately, uh, but then during the summers, uh, spent my time coaching soccer camps. Uh, and so that was you know, a real passion of mine. And uh, it got to the point where I actually went and played uh, my junior year in the Scottish Women's Premier League uh, for part of a season, uh, came back, had my uh, eligibility in question, uh, and decided that actually that was probably going to be the peak of my soccer career and that uh, instead coached my senior year. So uh, coaching was something that was really important to me, but I also felt uh, I wanted a kind of intellectual academic push too. And so um, physio ended up as kind of the hybrid of the two, kind of being able to coach um, and ideally stay close to sports, but also really be able to work with someone um, from the point of injury through till you know, their, their ability to achieve their goals again and get back to sport. Uh, so I went, I actually, uh, decided a little too late, uh, that I was going to be a physio to go straight from undergrad into grad school. So I spent a year as the head of women's football and, uh, what's called the William Penn fellow, um, at a private school in London or just outside London, and then went to Duke, uh, for PT school. Uh, and then, Got the opportunity uh, to both volunteer and and do kind of as much as I could with uh, the Carolina Railhawks, uh, which are now uh, NCFC, uh, as well as um, some other clubs uh, kind of during my PT school career. Um, And then that led into uh, my first job with a company uh, which started out called Balanced Physical Therapy uh, and then became part of AT or then became uh, ProAxis. And is now actually part of the ATI family, but um, that that job actually was kind of a, a split position. So I spent my mornings working with uh, endurance athletes in a sport cl- sporting clinic, uh, and then my afternoons at a big U soccer club, which is now the academy for NCFC. Uh, so I kind of uh, got my teeth, got my my feet wet, sunk my teeth in. Um, and was finding myself treating a lot of athletes with ACL reconstructions um, <clears throat> and uh, spending a lot of time and developing a lot of questions uh, clinically. And so 
in 2013, uh, I found out that Holly Silvers, who is someone I really looked up to from a clinical standpoint, uh, was coming to do her PhD with Lynn Snyder Mackler, uh, who is someone I really looked up to from a research standpoint. Um, and both were, uh, so they were going to be at University of Delaware. And uh, I had thought about doing a PhD at some point in my career. Uh, and given some other factors, this really ended up as a kind of big yellow life arrow that said, uh, you should do this now. <laughs> um so I uh, did a PhD at, at University of Delaware on uh, primary and secondary ACL injury prevention and return to sport, uh, mostly in soccer players. Um, and then um, in a, a kind of goal to try and, um, we'll say, uh, hit the big leagues, um, was applying to jobs uh, in the Premier League, um, actually wanting to work in a, kind of an academy setting. Um, and had uh, an opportunity, but um, these like things weren't coming qu- through quite quick uh, quickly enough when with regards to uh, the uh, visa side of things. So I uh, spent a month and a half traveling around Australia and playing a little bit of uh, Aussie rules football, um, and then <laughs> three months uh, are, yeah, in in Sweden, uh, working with Jan Akvist and Martin Hagland as well as Claire Ardern. Um, and that actually extended uh, into a little bit of the beginning of 2018. Um, and then some things didn't quite work out with uh, my move into England. Um, and so um, I was lucky enough that in the wake of that, uh, to have the opportunity to come work at the Nets. And so um, I've now been at the Nets since uh, May of 2018. I mean, it sounds like along the way you've had, uh, you know, despite the English Premier League stuff maybe not working out, you've had some amazing educational opportunities by the sounds of it, having been to Duke and um, and Delaware and then also Sweden. Those are those are pretty unique experiences uh, by themselves, let alone in combination. Yeah, and and just some of, I feel very very lucky to have had, worked with some really amazing people, and you know, I think developed friendships, uh, but especially collegial relationships with um, people who have really influenced me both uh, from a kind of academic and research as well as a clinical standpoint. So I've definitely, those, those experiences have definitely shaped me in, in a number of ways. And, you know, you mentioned that you were a football coach or a soccer coach um, early on. How much has that, um, do you think, changed or improved your ability uh, professionally now in sport, maybe as compared to, your professional peers who haven't worked as a, as a sports coach before being a clinical role? So I think, well, you know, when I was in soccer, it really gave me a, a real deeper understanding of um, both kind of what things look like from a coaching perspective, what it's like uh, to build practices, um, to analyze games, to break down uh, the various tactical and technical aspects of what I needed out of my players. Um, And I think the ability to kind of switch break, kind of switch hats in some ways, or I think a little bit differently um, as a physio, I think has has also helped being able to have that real understanding um, of both the technical and, and tactical side of the games um, and be, then being able to integrate that from really like day one uh, into a rehab. It's something that I feel like I've really grown um, in with basketball because I came into basketball really not 
knowing really much of anything about the game. So uh, it's still, you know, to this day, still a challenge for me to um, really make my rehabs as sport specific as I can. But I think that's also then led me to some what I think are really great relationships with uh, some of our coaching staff, because I have had to lean on them to say, you know, this is what I see. What do you see? Or this is, you know, this is what I'd like, you know, this athlete to get. How can we build that into a drill or, you know, in soccer, it's called this. What is it in basketball? Um, So I think having that coaching background um, has been really helpful from a sports standpoint, but then also from a teaching standpoint, I think it gave me a skill set that's been quite valuable. Yeah, no, for sure. And in as much detail as you're comfortable sharing, what, what does your kind of current role look like at the at the nets or maybe, you know, the responsibilities that fall upon you? Yeah, so um, a lot of my role is clinical, um, is helping, um, you know, keep our athletes on the court um, as well as uh, helping, you know, with the rehabs as um, we hope they don't, but as they do come. Uh, so kind of from a day-to-day maintenance, uh, a little bit of an injury prevention as well as a rehab standpoint, um, that's a lot of what what my uh, day in and day out is. Um, but then I also have responsibilities kind of with regards to um, uh, movement um, and kind of a research standpoint. So I help uh, oversee a lot of our injury statistics and generate our injury reports Um looking at what what's going on internally as well as pulling as much data as I can um, externally so we can kind of rate where we are uh, relative to the league um, as well as uh, you know kind of running what we do with regards to movement program um, both for our players as well as for draftees uh, trying to look at what's uh, what's going on with the athletes uh, that we're might be interested in drafting um, and are there particular things that uh, either could be something that we want to work on or target, something that's really good, or something that we might be hesitant about? And I want to get into some specifics with you. And you know, maybe to begin with, I want to talk to you about your approach to return to sport. And, you know, you can be as specific to the nets as you want to be, and equally you can just talk in general terms if you'd prefer but, you know, first and foremost, how would you kind of describe your personal approach to uh, return to play or return to performance? Yeah, I think, and maybe it goes back to my coaching background, is um, I wholeheartedly believe that uh, from day one, uh, if it's a ball-based sport, then a ball needs to be um, integrated in. I know there's there's some people who feel that, you know, once you, once you develop – movement, once you develop basic, um, basic strength, uh, then you introduce, uh, you know, that sport. But I actually think from day one, um, there's lots of ways that you can, um, build sport specificity into rehab. And so I think whether that's, whether you're day one to day five or whether you're, um, in your end stage, um, I think, you know, making your rehab, uh, sport specific is something that's really important to me. Um, you know, I really think about in, in soccer um, or football, uh, depending on what you want to use, um, <clears throat> you know, a, a player is going to have the ball at their feet probably only for about a minute and a half in a 90-minute game. 
But what they do with the ball in that minute and a half is really going to determine whether or not they're successful um, as an athlete. And so building ways that, you know, that those skills can be really automatic are, are automatic, um, <clears throat> maybe even improving their skills um, from day one, I think is something that's really important to me. Um, and it probably, you know, characterizes my philosophy when it comes to rehab and return to sport. So I think with that, you know, I think there's also ways like thinking about how do you make, how do you challenge an athlete when it comes to, um, you know, neuro, like kind of our, what we think of as maybe neuromuscular training um, or motor learning. And so challenging them with uh, cognitive challenges and decision making from an early standpoint, I think is also part of that sport specificity, but also part of something that's something I think is really important. And you were able to kind of share some, I don't know, maybe some examples of uh, how you personally make the rehab sport specific in terms of uh, the task demands of high performance. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, say we take a really early example, say we're working on just even single leg balance um, rather than, you know, your traditional single leg balance and we're, we're throwing and catching like that's that's great and all. And yeah, we might be actually using a basketball. Um, but why don't we actually challenge that athlete to have to make a decision or visually track something? So if I pat, if you're my athlete, I pass you the ball and then start, start to move towards you. Suddenly now you've got a physical pressure. Now it might, it's not, I'm not putting contact on you, but there is a time, uh, time limit now on the action that you have to make. So now with that ball, you've got to look and scan and find an outlet pass. So yeah, it might require, suddenly our drill requires a third person. Uh, but now our athletes got to read my motions as, say, a defender, where I'm moving. They've also got to visually scan to find that outlet pass. And they're still just doing balance. Uh, so we've added kind of a decision-making. We've added a little bit of a cognitive challenge. Um, and we're putting that in kind of a specific type task. Um, where they're reading cues that are a little bit more authentic to the sport. Um, so things like that, I think um, you can start really with, you know, basic motions or, or maybe what we think of as easy exercises and then can really easily then be transitioned into, you know, harder things where, um, you know, maybe our athletes actually back on court and they've got to, again, now they've got pressure of a defender coming at them. Now they might have to cut and move um, or, you know, in basketball, maybe they've got a jab um, or a pump fake to throw that defender off and then find an outlet or find, find a shot. So <clears throat> I think it takes a little bit of creativity. And here again, I think it takes um, some knowledge of the sport, uh, but it's not actually super hard to create some of those opportunities for, um, you know, making sure balls, balls involved, or, you know, if it's a ball based sport or, um, you know, obviously basketball and soccer are my, my go-to. So I'm, I'm maybe not as strong as coming up with uh, examples in other sports, but, um, that's kind of where I, where, where I, I try and, uh, build a lot of my exercises. Yeah. Do you think your kind of, uh, your early coaching background has, uh, aided your creativity to be able to periodize the complexity of, um, 
sports specific drills in rehab? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think, I think it definitely helps. And, and it's something that actually coming from a soccer background, um, I think may have been even more valuable. Um, you know, s- there is a, an emphasis on coaching education within soccer. Um, and so there's, you know, kind of a real understanding of um, <clears throat> how do you break, you know, larger aspects of the game down into tactical aspects, down into technical aspects, um, creating small-sided games, uh, which is something I was surprised that basketball doesn't really do. Um, both from, you know, there isn't a ton of coaching education in basketball. Um, there's kind of a lot of this mantra of, well, this is how it's been done. So this is how we do it. Um, uh, and there aren't really that, um, there aren't really a lot of opportunities where players or coaches break, uh, break things down into say like a small sided game or, a you know, smaller tech technical aspect. It's really a lot of sometimes one-on-one, uh, sh- you know, shooting, uh, one-on-one play or two-on-two play. Uh, and it's either kind of that skill rehearsal without much of a, you know, sport specific, um, you know, decision-making or challenge or, or, or cognitive challenge within it. It's just shooting or shoot and shooting and shooting and shooting, um, or it's play. And so finding, helping kind of, uh, find that in between, um, and helping kind of break things down in order to build them back up, uh, particularly when it comes to technical aspects of the game, which oftentimes are, you know, the found the, our, our movement foundations are what then support those technical aspects. Um, I think definitely having a coaching background was help is helpful in, in that understanding, but I think it's also, uh, part of physio education. Um, I think oftentimes it just takes a little bit of, um, you know, sitting down and looking at it to, to, to then see it that way. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your experiences in uh, soccer have been really valuable anyway into uh, at least what you want to achieve in basketball. Is that a fair kind of statement? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's been uh, a really good learning uh, learning experience for me to, uh, to move out of uh, soccer uh, and to kind of to ha- to be forced to learn a new sport. Um, but I think then it's also there's there's things that I've taken from soccer that have been really valuable uh in coming into basketball Mm. and i want to segue to injury risk mitigation or maybe for ease of language let's just call it prevention whether that's an agreeable term or not um (laughs) we won't go there but you know we've previously spoken uh, the two of us about off-the-shelf programs if you call them that to kind of attempt to achieve this objective but can you give the listeners maybe the context of that conversation and maybe with some experiences of of yours in terms of programming risk reduction across groups rather than individual athletes? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the literature, what's in the literature are kind of these off-the-shelf programs uh, when we're looking at injury, quote-unquote injury prevention or injury risk mitigation or whatever we decide to call it. I'll call it injury prevention just because that's that's easy. Um, <laughs> <You're fine. laughs> I think 
for me, there's there's a few ways to think about uh, injury prevention. Um, but when we, when we come to the implement, implementation pieces of it, um, there's a big difference between the resources that are around a youth um, or a semi-pro or lower level teams or even amateur and adult league teams uh, versus the resources that are around professional teams. And so with that, these off-the-shelf programs um, are really valuable for those teams that just don't have the resources. They're really valuable for a coach or a parent or a player who is, you know, knowledgeable about the risks of playing, say, soccer, um, but wanting to decrease or mitigate those risks as much as they can. Now, the other piece to it is they're prominent in the literature because they're easy to study. They're a nice, clean protocol that we put together um, and we run a group of people through it. Whereas the protocols that we might use, say, in a professional team where the exercises may be more uh, individualized to a particular player's needs, um, it becomes a little bit harder to study. So I think the off-the-shelf programs have a huge amount of value. Um, and we, but we may not see them as much or in the forms uh, of say the 11 plus in those professional uh, venues where we have the larger resources. Uh, but when it comes to those teams that have less resources, um, they're, they're absolutely, uh, you know, a huge uh, value add. I think the big piece that, we see across the literature is you just have to do them. (laughs) You know, there are programs that are successful, whether that's the 11 plus or cannot control, um, you know, the studies are there that say they work, uh, but you got to do them. Um, if you don't have that compliance, uh, then it doesn't, it's, you've just wasted, uh, potentially wasted some time. Uh, you're, we really just need to need to do them. That yeah, and I've definitely, said, I've definitely oh, seen. Co- that's right. I've definitely seen coaches uh, half commit to them. I would say, like especially the eleven plus, where maybe the the playing coach, if they don't have say a medical professional or strength coach to hand, has implemented say the eleven plus, but they haven't wanted to spare as much time as doing the full eleven plus routine would take. So they just borrow a few ideas, which. Uh, yeah, I think that's an it's an interesting way to do it because you you can't expect the same result, obviously. But I also I can see why under certain constraints why they might not always do the whole off the shelf program. But th- there's definitely some sort of pros and cons to when they do that. Yeah, I mean, if we take the eleven plus, uh, there's actually a study that came out recently that said actually if you split the eleven plus apart, so you actually take what's called part two, or it's kind of the strengthening component, and you actually do that after practice. Um, it's still effective. Uh, so, you know, it comes back to having really good relationships and having kind of a collaboration with that coach wherever possible. Um, but, you know, there's ways that you can implement it. So, you know, if that coach is like, I really just don't want to give up, you know, 20 minutes of my practice time, like maybe we've only got this field for an hour, giving up, you know, a third of my practice doesn't make sense. Can you say, well, can you give me 10 minutes and we'll do the rest of it on the sidelines at the end? Uh, you know, maybe it's working with them to integrate some of that tech 
tactic or sorry, technical aspects or some of those skill-based aspects um, in with some of those exercises. Um, it, if you've got a good relationship with a coach, um, if they're willing to collaborate, there's ways around just like, oh, well, we're, we're going to do this and this is how we're going to do it. Uh, and maybe instead being able to maximize what those players get out of those prevention programs. And obviously the 11 plus is, uh, is, is done for people and they can just download it or print it and they're good to go. Have you, in your previous experiences, had to, I guess, design your own um, kind of, if we call it a gain prevention, but have you had to design your own prevention programs for group athletes before? Yeah, so uh, I play uh, Australian rules football. <laughs> and uh, I actually, uh, in 2016, uh, stopped playing association football and uh, switched, over, switched football codes. Uh, and one of the things actually in uh, beginning to play uh, was actually approached by the USAFL um, to say, like, we want to make some videos of how we prevent ACL injuries. Um, and actually, I sat down with them and said, actually, let's take a step back because we need to first make sure that, you know, our ACL injuries are biggest issue. Uh, so we actually took a step back and, and actually did a, an injury survey. Um, and looked at what were our most uh, prevalent is- prevalent injuries within the USAFL uh, community. This was just on the women's side. We're now actually expanding it to the men's side. So it ended up that we actually needed to take a two-pronged approach because concussions were a major uh, issue. Um, and then knee injuries in general were the two injuries that athletes lost work from and were the mo- ca- caused them to miss the most time. Uh, and in an amateur sport, missing works probably the most important metric that we have. So not only did we then sit down and say, okay, what do we need to do with regards to concussion? And most of in that regard was act we we decided was actually with regards to you know coaching, umpire, and player education, uh, particularly with what they needed to look for when it came to uh, concussion symptoms, how to respond to. Um, a player who might be showing symptoms or might have had a head injury uh, and hand, how to then proceed and look at return to sport. Uh, but then also in designing a warm-up program, uh, which uh, <clears throat> looks similar to the 11 plus, uh, but also integrates things that um, collaborating with the coaching staff we felt would be really valuable. So um, it actually also includes uh, some safe tackling some uh, drills that work on falling, especially in women, you know, young girls don't get taught to fall. Um, boys kind of you look at boys playing and a lot of times uh, there's a lot of falling that happens, uh, but girls don't necessarily always get encouraged to play like that uh, or really get taught how to fall properly. Uh, so integrating some things like that that aren't necessarily what we think about uh, as our typical injury prevention strategies, uh, were something that in collaborating for the USAFL, we felt were important uh, in building that prevention program for them. That's really interesting. And have you been able to do like a monitoring piece since with that? We have. Uh, so we've kept going with the, um, it's now actually a yearly injury survey uh, that we do with the entire league. Uh, and then, like I said, this year, we started expanding it to the men. So we've got now two years of women's data and we'll have a, a year of men's data. Uh, it's going to be very interesting this coming season because uh, like 
all sporting organizations. Um, the USAFL is trying to figure out what will happen with this season. Um, but, you know, there isn't a lot of information on um, adult amateur athletes. There's not a lot of <laughs> information on uh, particularly adult collision sport athletes. Um, and when you take women <laughs> women into that, uh, you know, there's, there's almost none uh, or almost no data. So um, it's something that we as an organization felt like was uh, important to continue uh, both for the internal value of it, but also, uh, you know, if it, if it helps value or if it helps benefit, um, other female athletes, um, or really other adult amateur athletes, uh, that it's, it's something that's important to keep doing. Yeah. And clinicians can just, uh, pick and choose, I guess, like, like normal, the, the parts of that research that may or may not apply to their setting and their, their code or their sport. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. One of the things I want to talk to you about, uh, under the constraints of fitting this topic in within an episode is <laughs> developmental considerations in rehab, which could be a big topic in its own right. So we'll just see what we what we can get done on this topic. But <laughs> I'm I'm aware this is a professional interest of yours. Um, would you be able to kind of explain maybe, I guess, and first and foremost, what sparked your interest in interest in this specifically as a topic um, prof- and professionally? Yeah. So I think. Uh... Personally, personally, uh, I definitely came through puberty and had my fair fair share of injuries. Um, it's probably also what uh, got me interested in physio because I spent a fair amount of time with uh, our my physio back at back at home. Uh, but also, then uh, you know, working clinically, one of my favorite groups to work with um, are teenagers. Uh, and I think uh, as a as you're going through puberty, uh, as a physio, uh, or really coach or SNC, um, you have this chance to develop a relationship with, uh, somebody in a time that's kind of, you know, it's a pretty uncertain time in your life. Uh, a lot of things are changing. Um, and from a coach or physio standpoint, you're, you know, you're not a parent, but you are, you are in a role, uh, where you can really influence somebody. So I think helping athletes, uh, really develop an understanding of their bodies, really understand what's happening um, to them, understand, you know, how they're growing, uh, how they move, and just having a better understanding of themselves um, is an impact that, you know, really can be life-lasting and I think really valuable. Uh, so I found it, you know, just a really fun age group to to work with. And so that kind of really sparked my interest in, you know, what do we need to look at uh, as in athletes as they uh, <clears throat> do rehab, uh, particularly as they're coming through puberty? Uh, but then I think also, you know, the development doesn't necessarily end um, when you stop growing. Uh, and I think we also sometimes forget the end stages of, of uh, development and maturation, um, you know, especially in males, you know, it might be 21 to 24 before they finish actually growing. Uh, so, you know, even coming, even when we think of puberty traditionally ending, uh, I think there's still interesting aspects of development, uh, from an athletic standpoint, uh, that are kind of fascinating to me. So that's kind of the origin of, of where, where it kind of came from. Yeah. And, you know, coaches and clinicians can be uh, very focused on, I guess, an injury or, or maybe a training objective. But 
you know, as you've kind of seen it, what are the more important considerations within the developmental space that clinicians should be more cognizant of? Yeah, well, I think, you know, coming from uh, especially an ACL background and a, an injury prevention background, you know, we, we have pretty good data that says, you know, the younger an athlete is, especially younger female athletes, you know, that 12 to 15, 16 age group, um, you know, our injury prevention programs really make a big difference. But we don't really have a good understanding of the mechanism for really many of our injury prevention programs. Uh, We could come up with hypotheses about that, uh, but we don't necessarily have good solid ideas. So, you know, we we kind of had this idea that as girls go through puberty, um, you know, they gain, you know, their height, they gain mass. Uh, but they don't necessarily proportionally gain strength. It's kind of thought of as like it might be more height, mass, and then strength. Whereas our idea is that boys, boys comes through puberty, they may have a kind of more proportional growth. So they're gaining strength as they're gaining that that height and weight. Now, you know, but there's probably some nuances within that. Um, there's some studies that have shown that, you know, women may, may gain uh, knee extensor strength um, as they come through puberty, but they may not have kind of proportional hamstring strength. So does that mean that, you know, if we're looking at kind of this, call it quad dominance, um, theory on ACL injuries, um, you know, is that something that's potentially putting our female athletes at risk? What's happening at the hips? Well, you know, do they actually gain hip abduction strength, uh, or glute strength? Uh, proportionally to that knee extension. Um, there's some things that there's some data that says they may not, but may, that strength may actually decrease. Um, <clears throat> there's some unclear data. Uh, and then similarly, are there change? There's probably changes neuromuscularly that happen. Um, men tend to increase their uh, jump height. They can also actually decrease, see some decreases in like ground reaction force. So they're kind of mit- able to mitigate some of those forces of landing. Uh, but women don't necessarily see those same changes. So looking at some of those pieces and those aspects of what we know and actually what we don't know, uh, I think says, particularly in our female athletes, uh, we've got to be really targeted with our strengthening. Um, you know, say it's an ACL, um, we know they're, they're going to need quad strength um, as related to ACL outcomes. Do we also need to pay particular attention to their hamstring strength and their glute strength? Um, are those pieces that we may need to really focus on even more than we would in maybe an adult population? And similar with uh, that kind of neuromuscular control aspect. We know adult women tend to land jumps in more knee valgus than men. Uh, we'll probably see that. Um, we actually we do see that in younger women. So is that a pattern where we can actually work on some of that motor learning at a really early stage, really influence how they learn and develop, uh, and potentially actually have a window where we can make an actually even bigger impact on their long-term motor planning or kind of motor patterns uh, because they are growing and that, you know, their brains are adapting, their bodies are adapting. 
Um, is that a, a kind of window of opportunity that we have from a neuromuscular and motor learning perspective that if we capitalize, we'll have long-term benefits for them down the road. So I think um, those would be kind of on the like big picture <laughs> aspects. Um, <laughs> some of the things I, I, that I think about, and that's focused mainly on, on, on females. Uh, I think there's, there's other things um, that we can think that we might have to think about uh, from the younger males. Um, you know, does that mean we're really looking at hip flexor length or hamstring strength, adductor strength in our, like, say, um, male soccer pe- population? How can we influence that from an early standpoint? Um, and is that going to influence their, say, injury risk later on in life? I've got kind of like two questions, I guess, that have sprung to mind in hearing you talk then. And you know, the first, I guess, statement, I guess, is that I think we're pretty good as a profession now and have been for a long time, actually, at looking at, say, cue angles with um, female athletes of any age. Um, on your on your kind of point about the quad ratio, um, and you, you mentioned that you do a little bit more hamstring testing or, or hamstring strength as it relates to, I guess, being an agonist to the ACL. But when do you see the hamstrings kind of catch up in a developing female athlete? Is there like a, a kind of common age range where you see the hamstrings get back on board? That's a good question. And I don't actually, I don't know the question, the answer to that. Um, I, you know, it, it could actually, the answer could be, uh, we don't know. Um, the answer could be <laughs> that they may never, um, or that they, they do. And I just don't know. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, I don't actually know. <laughs> No, I respect that. It's good, good honesty. Um, and I guess like you, you touched upon young male athletes at the end, and obviously you work with anthropometrically wise, if that's a word, <laughs> a um, an interesting sport where you know with male athletes reaching up to seven foot, uh, foot in height, um, and, and a lot of them at a young age as well. Is there kind of strength and balances that you've witnessed with? young basketball players coming through as their height shot up? Have you seen certain strength metrics um, kind of lose their balance in that process? Yeah, you know, I don't have a lot of data on our experience with uh, basketball players as they're coming, say, through puberty. Um, Where I kind of, the starting point where I kind of come into contact with them uh, is as we screen guys uh, who we might, who we're looking at to potentially draft. Uh, and I think one of the things uh, that really surprised me uh, is oftentimes uh, guys are pretty weak. Um, and that can that can be guys who have, you know, maybe they've come from high school, they've played one year of college, uh, and then they and then they're coming into the draft pool. Uh, so you know, with all credit to you know college s and c, um, they really just haven't been in that program for very long. So the opportunity to make strength uh, gains there uh, isn't very big. But, you know, I think basketball is also a sport that's quite guilty of early specialization. So we see athletes who really all they've done from when they were little is just play basketball. Um, some of them were multi-sport up until, say, junior high. Um, a lot are single-sport athletes. Um, some have had some strength training. Um, I would say a lot of them haven't. Uh, and so you see that both for, I think from a strength perspective, but for me, since I do a lot of looking at movement, um, and that's kind of 
my area within our our draft process, um, I was really kind of really surprised uh, during that first draft round uh, at some of the movement fundamentals that guys really struggled with. Uh, single leg balance was, you know, is a task and a half. Uh, single leg squats are, um, you know, as I would, I would call them sometimes pretty atrocious. Um, and so, you know, just things that we think of as movement fundamentals, um, you know, I think across sports, you see athletes struggle with them, um, uh, but they're real basics to, um, you know, being able to then build and develop and grow athletically. Uh, so I think there's a lot, I see a lot of room for improvement, um, say within the guys that we draft, um, and the guys that we were working on and, and from a developmental standpoint um, and just kind of some of those basic neuromuscular control pieces, basic athletic movements. Um, maybe it's even kind of coming into a neutral squat or a defensive stance. Um, you know, that really um, is something that some guys struggle with. So from, from, from that perspective within the basketball realm, I think that's one of the things that I really see and as was also something that was really surprising to me. It sounds like a bit of a perfect storm, doesn't it? Because you've got a combination of, like you said, early specialization. Um, then they get to, say, a college NCAA schedule where they don't have tons of capacity or space in the schedule to uh, physically develop or maybe time in terms of how long they're in the program for. Mm-hmm. And then, and then they get uh, they get to the NBA, and they are very tall. They've got long levers, lots of load going through them relative to their mass, and yep. they haven't got that um, that kind of solid strength and conditioning base or training age under them compared to their sort of technical and tactical abilities or uh, their on court age and ability. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And then you know, add on to that, you know, you might have a guy who's nineteen. Um, who, you know, from a develop physical development standpoint, you know, he might still have an inch or two to grow. Uh, and he's definitely got, um, you know, not fully, de- sorry, he's, he's definitely not fully developed when it comes to a musculature standpoint, um, a weight standpoint. Uh, and we're going to ask that athlete to go up against a 30 year old who's fully grown, fully developed, has, you know, maybe 10 years of NBA experience, um, as well as that weight and size. Um, you know, one of the things, uh, I'm pretty interested in, in, in looking at is, you know, what are our injury risks within our rookies is doing that is putting that like not fully developed <laughs> player up against that fully developed player. Um, something that we need to worry about intuitively, I would think, yeah. Um, <laughs> if not, if not purely because of that size, but then just like you said, you know, their, their foot's a lot further away from their hip, uh, than it was two years ago. And can they control, you know, everything in between, um, as well as they need to, uh, when they're going up for that layup or driving to that basket or taking contact from someone who's, uh, 30 pounds heavier than them. I think it's going to be interesting in a few years to see the current state of this conversation then as well, because there's more and more basketball type academies opening up at high school age. So Mm -hmm. 
it is kind of in terms of like competing variables, you've got a trend at the moment where more athletes are going to uh, early specialization in basketball at academies at high school age. Um, but then on the flip side, they're also then getting high quality, you'd think, strength and conditioning at an earlier age. So it'd be interesting to see what outweighs the other. Is it better for them to have earlier strength and conditioning or is it better for them to have, um, or, or does the early specialization take over still? I think it'd be interesting to see which one outbalances the other if if that happens. Yeah, I definitely think it will. I uh, actually recently wrote an article for the FMPA um, kind of comparing football or soccer to basketball. And and one of the things that in thinking about that comparison um, that really stuck out to me is how much um, football academies have invested in looking at development. Um, at, you look at a Premier League or Bundesliga or, um, you know, many of the leagues across Europe and, and the academies are, um, you know, sometimes, you know, held as high as the, the first team clubs themselves. Um, think about Southampton is, you know, r- renowned for their academy. Um, but in football uh, or soccer, you have loans and you've got transfer fees. So a club can actually make money off of a developing player. And so with that, it makes sense to invest in your academy because it's actually a place for a, a money generating opportunity. We don't really have that in basketball yet. Um, and I say yet because, as you said, we've, we're starting to see a lot more academies develop. Um, you know, are they there are things like private schools or um, AAU programs where uh, kids are getting the opportunity to, like you said, strength train, work with um, really high level coaches. So it may change. Um, but do we also then see that actually in, you know, repetitive movement um, or overuse injuries and see it play out that way? Do we actually still come back to the value of having a real diversity in an athlete's movement as they're learning, as they're growing. <clears throat> and that diversity in movement not only helps them from a motor control, motor learning standpoint, but also from a just overuse, preventing overuse standpoint. So I think there's, there's uh, pros and cons uh, <laughs> that we may see, see play out uh, in, in both a- avenues. Are you doing any research in any of the topics that we've just been discussing? And, you know, is there a good place for the listeners to track your activity, if so? <laughs> um, probably the best place to track my activity um, is uh, that's a good, good question. <laughs> probably the best place to track my activity is, is on uh, Twitter uh, or something like ResearchGate. Um, I, I'm on Instagram, but it's more if you want to follow uh, the rubber duck that I travel with um, and where he's going. Uh, but from a research standpoint, um, I have my fingers in a few pots right now. Um, one is uh, looking at <clears throat> kind of uh, some NBA, NBA injury surveillance. Um, so hopefully that will um, be forthcoming soon, uh, kind of a collaboration with some of my friends over at Oxford, particularly at Garrett Bullock. Um, <clears throat> I'm still doing um, a little bit of stuff uh, with a crew in Linköping. 
Um, we actually just had a paper. Um, the last of my postdoc papers came out uh, this pa- this week um, in IGSPT, uh, where we looked at uh, the tuck jump and how it relates to other performance measures. Um, there are some uh, potential further things that we might be looking at with regards to prospective, uh, some prospective data that they've collected. Um, so looking at um, particularly after ACL or as well as comparing the healthies, um, how some of those functional measures may be associated with a future uh, knee injury. Um, and then uh, kind of like I talked about earlier, uh, still doing some work with the USAFL. So uh, I've got my hands in a few things, um, none specifically uh, developmental stuff right now, uh, but but there's a who's who's to say what's to come. <laughs> it sounds like at this time of recording uh, during coronavirus or isolation, it sounds like this what this window of time's probably given you some uh, silver lining benefits to get that research work done. There's always there's always the wish for more time. Um, <laughs> even even in coronavirus, uh, you know, it, it's been it's been fun to get to do and finish off uh, work on some projects, uh, work on some new projects. Uh, but yeah, then there's always there's always other things that I, I want to do. But that's also my personality is that I'm always going to have a to do list that's three miles long. <laughs> no bad thing well amy i thank you so much for coming on it's been uh, it's been really interesting to chat to you and uh hear your views on on the topics discussed and yeah thanks for your time yeah thank you so much for having me i really really appreciate it my pleasure big thank you to amy for coming on today's show at this time of release she is currently living in the nba bubble down in orlando so i wish her and the brooklyn nets well during this historic and incredibly surreal moment in sporting history Next week, I will be speaking to Garrison Draper, the Director of Performance for the Philadelphia Union Major League Soccer Team. So keep your eyes peeled on our social media channels for that one. As usual, you can contact or find us at InformPerformance on Instagram, InformPod on Twitter, and InformPerformance.com for the show notes and our website. Thanks to our sponsors, Vald Performance, for supporting today's show, and thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for more performance and sports medicine insights with us at Inform Performance.